so my name's John Savile. I'm currently lucky enough to be head of the College of Medicine and Veterinary Medicine. Uh, and I'm going to introduce Dorothy Crawford, who's going to give the first of these lectures about medical detectives. Obviously, the, whole, the theme of the series lends uh, itself to thinking about Arthur Conan Doyle, who must have been taught in this lecture theatre, uh, given that he left the medical school in 1881, and this was here in 1878. So he was probably sitting somewhere where you are, and would have been thrilled that someone as distinguished as Dorothy was going to give a lecture uh, based on his ideas of medical detective behaviour. Dorothy's a very distinguished clinical academic. She trained at St Thomas's Hospital in London, did a PhD in Bristol, was a research fellow at UCL. We overlapped at the Royal Postgraduate Medical School, Hammersmith. She went to the London School of uh, Tropical Medicine and Hygiene as a professor in 1990, came here to the Robert Irvin Chair of Medical Microbiology in 1997, I came in 1998, uh, and uh, was head of the School of Biomedical Sciences for a long time, served with great distinction, and recently was appointed by the Principal as the first ever Assistant Principal for the Public Understanding of Medicine. And Dorothy should be credited with the idea of this series of public lectures and her title uh, gives the game away because her major contribution to human health has been the work that she's done in understanding how Epstein-Barr virus affects people who are immunosuppressed after transplants and how this life-threatening or transplant-threatening condition can be treated with killer T-cells. So I'll hand over to Professor Dorothy Crawford, OBE. back there. You look absolutely miles away. Can you nod? <laughs> you can hear me. Thank you. Okay. Right. So um, the detective story I'm going to tell you this evening is about the investigation of the cause and treatment of a particular type of cancer. And um, I'm going to start by describing a crime scene. Then I'm going to, oh, the crime scene which involves this little chap here. Um, I'm going to then move on to defining the problem for you, uh, which involves this uh, tumour section here. Um, and then I'm going to look at clues from the past, um, which involves this rather pretty-looking virus here. Um, and then, uh, following up the leads, building up the evidence, uh, which uh, was a great deal of this kind of work that went on in the lab for many years. And finally, after showing you a vital clue, um, I'm going to tell you about the final proof, which was, of course, a clinical trial which was undertaken here in Edinburgh. So first of all, the crime scene. And this is, in fact, the body of this little chap here. Uh, this is four-year-old Mohammed, um, who I first met at the Birmingham Children's Hospital. Um, but he was born, unfortunately, with a severe Hirschsprung's disease. And Hirschsprung's disease, for those of you who don't know, is um, a problem with the bowel where these kids are born without uh, nerves in a section of the bowel. And so that section simply doesn't work and it causes an obstruction. 
Um, this can generally, it's generally a so short section of bowel and can be treated by resection, but unfortunately in Mohammed's case it was a very large section of bowel and he found himself at the young age of nine months having a combined liver and small bowel transplant. And this worked very well. It, it sorted out his Hirschsprung's disease, but believe it or not, just nine months later, this little chap developed a malignant lymphoma. Now, I'm going to stop the case report there because I'm going to come back to him later, as he was actually the first transplanted child that we treated with our um, particular sort of treatment. But really, the question to ask is, what on earth is going on here? Is it just bad luck that this little chap was born with a, uh, a terrible debilitating disease, that he then had uh, a combined liver and bowel transplant, and lo and behold, nine months later, developed a malignant lymphoma? Is that just chance, or are these events related? <coughs> well, as it happens, transplant recipients have to take drugs to suppress their immune system, usually for the rest of their life. Uh, and this is to stop uh, their immune system rejecting the organ that's been transplanted into them. And these immunosuppressive drugs, unfortunately, cause a high incidence of infections and tumors in these patients. Lymphomas, like the one Mohammed uh, suffered from, are around 100 times more common in people who have had transplants than in those who haven't. Uh, in fact, they're the most common life-threatening complication of transplantation, and if not treated, they're rapidly fatal. Now, I want to go, having defined the problem, to look at uh, what we can learn from uh, work that had gone on in the past, and I want to go um, and introduce you to Sir Anthony Epstein, who was the supervisor of my PhD. Um, he was Professor of Pathology in Bristol from 1968 uh, to 1985. Um, he then retired and now, well into his 80s, is still actually working um, in Oxford. But he, was, uh, the first, he discovered the first human tumour virus in 1964, uh, and he called it Epstein-Barr virus after, obviously, himself, and his PhD student, Yvonne Barr, who was working with him at the time. Um, up until 1964, we certainly knew that there were animal viruses that caused tumours, but this was the first one to be discovered um, in humans. And I've called him a great medical detective because um, of the way he discovered this. Um, let's see if I can get this arrow. Oh, there it is. Um, he um, heard a description of a tumour called Burkitt's lymphoma, which is actually the commonest tumour in children in Central Africa. And he, when he discovered that um, it was geographically restricted to this central band across Africa, he was absolutely sure that this tumour must be caused by a virus. And he spent two years having biopsy material sent from Uganda to his lab, then in London, and looking under the electron microscope to see if he could find a virus in this material. And as I said, it took him two years of solid work before he actually did find a virus, um, and that was Epstein-Barr virus. Um, when I was in the Congo earlier this year, I saw this little chap here at the bottom um, suffering from Burkitt's lymphoma, and this is a picture of him after he's undergone two weeks' treatment. I, I think the picture of him before treatment was too distressing to show because his eye, this eye which now looks rather sunken, was uh, sticking right out and, and really looked uh, quite distressing. He also had a very large lump in his cheek here which still looks a bit swollen. So he's well on his way to recovery, fortunately. 
So what about Epstein-Barr virus, uh, which on most of my slides will be abbreviated to EBV, which is what we call it? Well, the first surprise was that uh, despite the fact that it causes tumours in this very restricted area of Africa, it actually is an extremely common virus and infects over 90% of, of people worldwide. So most of the people in this audience will be infected by this virus and will also be carrying it in their bodies for life. It's spread in saliva um, and it generally infects during childhood when it doesn't cause any problems at all. But if infection is delayed until adolescence or early adulthood, then it is the virus that causes glandular fever, commonly known as the kissing disease because it's spread by salivary contact. Now, we assumed um, at that stage that in healthy people who are persistently carrying this virus, it must be very well controlled by their immune system um, because after all, it is a tumor virus. Uh, and so in healthy people, it must be controlled. And the question that we were all asking ourselves at that stage was, does EBV cause this increased risk in lymphomas in immunosuppressed people? And now, in a very cloak and dagger way, I want to tell you um, about a chance encounter in a lift. So I was still ask asking myself this question when I moved to the Royal Free Hospital um, and I don't know if anybody, any of you have been to the Royal Free Hospital, but it's a tall, thin hospital. It's a tower block. And if you want to meet anybody in that hospital, you stand by the lift. There's a whole bank of lifts, and everybody is going up and down, up and down. And you meet doctors, patients, visitors, people in wheelchairs, people in beds, all waiting to get into the lift. And so it was there that I overheard a, con a conversation, quite by chance, um, between two renal transplant physicians who were discussing a tumour, the first that they'd had in one of their renal transplant patients. Of course, my ears pricked up and I was absolutely really excited and I got talking to them. Um, and to cut a long story short, I was able to um, obtain some of that tumour and to stain it um, with antibodies to detect Epstein-Barr virus. And this is a picture of that tumour with the virus-infected uh, cells uh, as it turned out, the tumour cells stained in brown. So this tumour has the unfortunate name of post-transplant lymphoproliftive disease, which is almost unpronounceable, so for obvious reasons, uh, I'll call it PTLD uh, for the rest of the talk. But it now turns out, after a lot of studies, that 80 to 90% of these tumours are actually caused by EBV. It occurs in up to 10% of transplant recipients, and it's 50% fatal, even with conventional treatment. It's, and it's more common in children than it is in adults who have had transplants. And just as, a, as an aside, similar tumours also occur in other groups of immunosuppressed people, including those infected with HIV. But, but all the studies that I'm going to describe have been done on transplant recipients. Is it still there? Okay, so this was obviously a major lead, and I, I actually have to say that I've probably spent the rest of my working life following up on this particular lead. So we now know that around one in a million of our B lymphocytes in our blood and in our organs are carrying this virus. Um, and the immune system is a very complex setup, um, but uh, simplistically, the specific immune system can be divided into um, this pink panel here, which uh, shows antibody production from B cells here, and cellular, the cellular side, um, which consists of helper T cells and killer T cells. 
So we know that antibodies uh, prevent the virus spreading within the body. We know that helper T cells help antibody production and also help these killer T cells. But the, we also know that the major control of this and other persistent virus infections are uh, killer T cells, which kill the virus-infected cells, as they're doing diagrammatically here. So what are killer T cells? They're also called cytotoxic T cells, and they have a marker on their surface which is called CD8. So they're sometimes called CD8 T cells. And we know that they're the main defense against viruses and intracellular bacteria. And here in this photomicrograph is a, a little activated T cell there doing its level best to kill this massive um, abnormal tumor cell. So they can also, on occasions, attack tumor cells. They circulate in the blood, they control, they patrol the tissues, they congregate in lymph nodes, looking for uh, virus-infected cells to kill. But very importantly, and not shown in this little cartoon here, um, they can only kill virus-infected cells if they are matched by tissue type, or HLA type, as we say. So they can only recognize and kill cells which are of the same tissue type as they are. And I have to say they don't carry guns, but they are very effective nonetheless. So we spent a lot of time doing studies looking at killer T cell function in transplant recipients. And this is one such study uh, where we looked at the percentage of killing of virus carrying cells in this y-axis. And uh, C stands for a control group of virus infected people, healthy people, where you can see they had an average of 90% killing. P1 to 7 represent transplant recipients. I think it was renal transplant in this case. And as you can see, um, P1 to 4, these patients had no evidence of killer T cell function against the virus at all. And the other three had some, but only to a maximum of about 75%. So clearly, following transplant, um, the immunity to Epstein-Barr virus drops dramatically. In this experiment, uh, we looked at killer T cell function in the laboratory with and without the addition of the immunosuppressive drug that most patients take, which is called cyclosporin A. And again, we have the percentage of killing up on the y-axis and um, results from nine blood samples from healthy individuals uh, showing the percentage of killing in blue. And as you can see, it's 80% or above. But when we added this drug um, before we did the test, then it dropped, knocked it absolutely down to zero in every case. So clearly proof that the drugs that are uh, being given to prevent these patients rejecting their graft, their grafted organ, also have a dramatic effect on the killer T cell function against Epstein-Barr virus. In this experiment, uh, we've looked at the level of virus in the peripheral blood of a group of heart transplant patients um, and we've compared it, here's the uh, level in viral load per million of cells in the peripheral blood. We've looked at healthy individuals, and as I said before, about one in a million cells will carry the virus. Uh, before the transplant, where's my arrow gone there? Um, this was raised a bit, not surprisingly, I think, because obviously these patients were severely ill before they got their heart transplant. Um, following the transplant and starting on the uh, immunosuppressive drugs, it was very much raised again. 
here. And those of them that developed the post-transplant lymphoproliferative disease tumor, again, it was uh, very high indeed. And if you notice, this is a log scale up here, so these differences are very marked. So after many years of studies like these that I've showed you, um, we could come to some sort of a um, summary of the immune control against EBV. And I regard it as a balancing act. Um, if, as over here, you have a high level of killer T cells, as healthy individuals do, then you can keep your virus level in the body low and you are at very low risk of developing any problems. But if, on the other hand, like transplant recipients, you have a low level of killer T cells, then your level of EBV in the blood and elsewhere in the body will be high, and that is a risk for developing these tumors. So at this stage, we felt we really knew quite a bit about EBV and what it was doing in the body, and it was about time to, um, to go back to the patients and see if we could formulate a hypothesis and then uh, set about proving it and seeing if we could help them in that way. And our hypothesis really was very simple, that these patients lack the uh, killer T cells they require to control this virus. Uh, could we perhaps uh, give them these T cells and then either prevent or treat the tumors that they were developing? So we then went into a new phase, back into the clinic really, um, to develop, to test this hypothesis. Now, at the time, and, and really at, at the present time as well, the, the treatments for PTLD were varied. Um, in all transplant centers, the first line of treatment would be to try to reduce the level of the immunosuppressive drugs that the patients are taking um, in order to uh, increase the activity of the, of the killer T cells in the hope that they will kill off the tumor cells. Now, of course, this is a complete balancing act because if you reduce the drugs too far, the patient will reject their transplanted organ. And sometimes that's acceptable. Sometimes a doctor and a patient will agree that if they have a, a kidney transplant, for example, they might be prepared to sacrifice their transplanted kidney in order to get rid of the tumor. They can go back on dialysis treatment for a while, and then when the tumor has gone, uh, they can perhaps have another renal transplant. But of course, if you've had a heart or a liver transplant, this really isn't an option. And so there's definitely a limit to the amount that the level of the drugs can be reduced. So although this is a helpful treatment, and in some cases it works, in many cases, the patients have to go on to having chemotherapy or radiotherapy or sometimes surgery. But the new treatment uh, that we're trying to develop or have developed is uh, immunotherapy. So what is immunotherapy? Well, I like to define it as harnessing the immune response to fight disease. And it's being pioneered in, in many labs around the world to fight infections and also cancer. But it vitally depends on the immune cells being able to recognize a foreign protein on the surface of the cells and then target those cells for killing. Both antibody and T-cell immunotherapy have been proved successful, but uh, it's early days. And, and this uh, here is the cover of a new journal called Immunotherapy, showing, I assume, a healthy young man here who uh, is perhaps donating antibodies or cells um, to be used in uh, somebody whose immune system is not up to scratch. So why did we think of using T-cell immunotherapy for PTLD? Well, we know that it's a virus-associated tumor. We know that the virus proteins 
which would be regarded as foreign uh, by killer T cells are expressed on the cells and are recognized by these T cells. Uh, we know that killer T cells control the infection in healthy individuals. We've shown that in the lab. And uh, in this uh, picture here, these are activated EBV-specific killer T cells in the blood of someone who is uh, infected with EBV for the first time. Uh, we know that PTL tumors can regress when the immunosuppressive therapy is reduced, suggesting that the T cells again are controlling the situation. And we hope that we were producing a toxic, a non-toxic tumor-specific treatment. And discussing this with patients, a non-toxic treatment is exactly what they want. As you can imagine, if you've had a chronic debilitating disease, followed by a transplant, followed by a tumor, uh, you really don't want, or many of them really didn't want, uh, cytotoxic therapy, which uh, you know, is going to cause um, them to feel ill and other problems. Um, so we certainly had a patient groups supporting us in this. By the time we got to thinking about immunotherapy for PTLD, there was a history to it, uh, particularly in bone marrow transplant recipients. And in this situation, um, the healthy donor is available to provide killer T cells. If you've donated a, a, a bone marrow, it's an afternoon procedure and you're alive and well afterwards. Um, so that's um, great in the bone marrow transplant situation. And also, because the recipients have received the um, bone marrow from the donor, and the bone marrow gives rise to um, the immune system, then they share their immune system with the donor, and there's no problem with tissue type. They're matched for tissue type. So that, in a way, is an easy situation and had been going on for a while um, when we came to the field. But we were more interested in treating these tumors in solid organ transplant recipients, people who had had hearts, um, heart, lungs, livers, that kind of thing, because these tumors are much more common in that group of people. And here, the donors are not generally available. Obviously, if you've donated a heart or a liver, you're not going to be around to tell the tale. Um, and also, donors and recipients in these situations are not generally matched for tissue type. So we had to think of another way of sorting out this problem. And what we came up with was the Edinburgh T-cell bank. We decided that we'd grow a whole load, it turned out to be 100, um, T-cell lines from healthy blood donors, and we were helped in this by the Scottish National Blood Transfusion Service donors who came along uh, very willingly to give their blood. Um, we grew them in the lab, uh, we chose the tissue types so that they covered in the end 95% of common UK tissue types. Uh, we grew them in the lab for up to 12 weeks or even 14 weeks until they were specific for Epstein-Barr virus. Um, we uh, showed that they were killer T cells mostly, CD8 positive, with a minority population of helper T cells with a CD4 marker. We then screened them for any infection that might have uh, been incorporated during the tissue culture period, which is going on here. Um, and if they were clear, we froze them down ready for infusion. And I'd just like to point out here Gwen Wilkie in the back there, um, who was our trial coordinator and uh, kept this whole program on the road day to day. While we were just more or less finishing this, which took us two years to grow the bank, um, a vital clue came along in the form of an emergency phone call, which I received from Manchester Children's Hospital where they had admitted an eight-year-old girl with a primary immunodeficiency. 
Now, this means she hadn't had a transplant, um, but she was a child who'd been born with um, a faulty immune system, if you like, and all her life she'd suffered from severe virus infections. But in this particular occasion, she had a three-week history of increasing headaches, drowsiness, vomiting, double vision, unsteady gait, and eventually difficulty in speaking all pointing at something wrong with her brain, and she had an MRI scan which showed multiple lesions in the brain. One of these was biopsied and shown to be um, an EBV-positive brain tumour. This, they had given her intensive therapy, including antivirals, chemotherapy, steroids, antibody therapy, and her condition continued to deteriorate rapidly, and by the time I got the phone call, she was in a coma in the ITU and being mechanically ventilated. So we obviously, luckily, we had um, killer T cells in our bank with, which matched at least partially to her tissue type, and we were able to uh, provide them with seven weekly infusions of our killer T cells. Um, there was an almost immediate response. Uh, the level of virus in her blood and in her cerebrospinal fluid, that's the fluid that bathes the brain, became undetectable after the second infusion. The clinical response was obvious after the third infusion. She became conscious, able to walk, talk, eat, and eventually she was back at school. And four months later, she received a bone marrow transplant which corrected her immunodeficiency. And she is now a happy, healthy teenager. Um, this shows you her brain scans, uh, first at diagnosis, the middle one four weeks later. As you can see, the lesions, the white lesions, uh, have got larger, and then one week after the seventh infusion, they virtually disappeared, and uh, a few weeks later, um, this final lesion had also disappeared. This family, I have to say, were not shy of publicity, um, and this is uh, the little girl here, Alex Lowe, with her parents, and there was a rather dramatic account of all of this published in the Reader's Digest, um, and also a slightly more staid account, which we uh, published in the medical literature. <laughs> so that actually gave us the courage and the enthusiasm to continue to get the final proof in the form of a clinical trial. And so we set up a UK-wide multi-centre phase two clinical trial to use these killer T cells from our bank to treat post-transplant lymphoproliferative disease. Um, I've put a whole slide for this, uh, not because it needs it, but because it was such a minefield getting approval from these various um, regulatory authorities uh, that it requires a whole slide just for me to say, heck, we did it. <laughs> we also had to enrol a lot of transplant centres. I don't expect you to read them all. I think there are 27 of them there. But I would just like to point out um, that one of them was uh, the Queensland Institute, Institute for Medical Research in Australia, um, it just so happened that when we were setting up this trial, um, a young doctor from there passed through our lab and heard what we were doing and was really keen to take part. And we actually sent three lots of T-cells to Australia, um, and they survived fine, and the patients did well. Uh, we also sent some to Paris and some to Stockholm. So this is what we actually did on the ground. Um, when any of our centers had a PTLD patient, they sent us blood and they sent us the tissue type. Um, we made cells from the patient's blood, uh, one uh, line of cells which contained the virus, EBV positive, one line of cells which did not contain the, the 
the virus, representing all their cells in the rest of the body apart from the tumour. Um, we then looked in our bank and chose two or three of the best tissue type match for the patient, and then we tested them in the laboratory for maximum killing against the uh, EBV positive cells, the tumour cells, and minimum killing against the cells which represented the rest of that person's body cells. And here um, I've got actually the first uh, experiment that we ever did on this, um, and this was a patient um, whose tissue type is um, along the bottom here, it's, and we had two cell lines which were partial matches, 007, if you look here, this was a match on A3, B35, and that was it. O3O was a match on A31, B35, and DR7. So we thought those two cell lines, and we tested them for killing in the laboratory against the patient's line. So this is the amount of killing that we got up the y-axis. This is the patient's EBV positive line, and this is the patient's EBV negative line. And I think you can see that 007 was the one um, which had the best killing against the virus-carrying cells, and both had really very minimal killing against non-virus-carrying cells. So in this case, we infused 007. Um, during the trial, in the clinic, uh, we gave intravenous infusions of the best match T-cell line. Uh, we gave four weekly infusions, and they were normally just given as outpatients um, in a syringe like this, um, unless the patient, for some other reason, was an inpatient. We chose a dose of 2 million per kilogram of body weight, which is about 140 million cells per dose. Um, we were monitoring, obviously, for tumour response, or no response, and in the laboratory we were measuring the level of the virus in the blood, uh, whether the patients were producing antibodies against these foreign cells we, that we were infusing into them, because these could have obviously had a deleterious effect on the treatment, and whether our cells were causing any kind of graft rejection or um, problems with graft function. We enrolled 33 patients in the trial, although we have treated many more out with the trial, 19 male, 14 female, very large age range, 1 to 40, uh, 76, because we were very keen to have children in the trial because, as I said, uh, these tumours are more common in children. And it's important to say that all these patients had failed to respond to all the other therapies that they could have had. They were really at the end of the line as far as that was concerned. And we, we didn't mind what kind of transplant they've had. As you can see, we had a large range, mostly liver and kidney, but also hearts, heart, lung, stem cells, and such like. And obviously the most important thing to look at in this kind of a trial to start with is the safety data. Uh, we saw no infusion-related toxicity in any of our patients. Uh, just one patient developed antibodies against the infused T cells, but this was only after the fourth dose. So we concluded that um, killer T cells from unrelated donors, as long as they're matched uh, for tissue type, are safe to use in vivo. But the question is, did they work? Well, here's the trial outcomes at six months. Uh, we saw 75% survival and a 52% tumor response. And just one patient who had had a complete response later relapsed. And this is shown with the overall survival on this graph here, uh, showing the survival rate along here and time along here. And I come back to little Mohammed here, who was our first patient, and uh, is now a healthy 10-year-old. 
As I said, we monitored the viral load in the patients during the infusions, and uh, this shows a graph with the level of virus here, time along here, and the red arrows show you the times of the infusions. And in fact, in every patient, um, the level of virus in the peripheral blood came down to zero. We had some interesting results. Um, one was that the tumor response uh, was better in those patients who we were able to have a better match of tissue type. So here on the y-axis we have the percentage response and uh, along the bottom here we have the number of, of matches that we were able to um, produce between the patient's um, tissue type and the infused cells. So that is either two out of six, three out of six, four out of six, or five out of six. And I think you can see that there's an increasing response there with those who got five out of six um, responding at 80%. Something that really took us rather by surprise was the fact that helper T cells in the infused cells improved the outcome. I said earlier that there were very few of them there and we really weren't taking much notice of them because we were concentrating on the killer cells. But it seems that um, the number of helper cells was important. And if you look here again, we've got the percentage response up this way, um, in blue at five weeks and in red at six months. And the number or the percentage of helper T cells in the infused cells along the bottom, they were very low, so less than 1%, 1 to 4.9% and 5% or over. And again, I think you can see that the more helper cells there were there, the better the outcome. Probably because they were literally helping um, our killer T cells to survive and to function once they're put into the recipient. Um, this is a brain scan from a patient with PTLD who had, I hope you can see, three lesions in the brain arrowed there. Um, this is uh, before the T-cell infusions and afterwards uh, had a complete remission. And finally, really the icing on the cake for us uh, was being able to find our infused T-cells actually in the tumor um, of a patient. Uh, obviously, we... Um, in fact, this is the only biopsy that we got from a patient after treatment. They don't want to uh, be having to have more investigations after they've had the treatment. But it just so happened, this was one of the Australian patients, um, and a biopsy was taken after four infusions, uh, showing scattered uh, CD8 positive T cells here arrowed, meaning that they were um, killer T cells, but not absolute proof that they were ours. But as luck would have it, this was an infusion of male T cells into a female patient. And therefore, we were able to look at the X and Y chromosomes and stain them up. I hope you can see them. Yes. Um, we have uh, a, a green dot for the X. And so this cell here, for example, is a female cell, the patient cell with two uh, green dots. But this cell here is quite clearly a male cell with an X and a Y, a red and a green dot. And therefore, that is actually one of our infused T cells. Amazing. So that's just about as far as we've got. And I just want to end up by saying, well, um, what is the future of T-cell immunotherapy for EBV tumors? We, we've done a proof of concept trial, which was successful. Um, and I think we've shown that really one bank can provide T-cells internationally. You can't send them much further than Queensland, Australia from Edinburgh. Um, so I think one or two banks internationally would be good. But unfortunately, while we were doing our trial, the EU regulations came out on these immunotherapies, 
Um, and our T-cell bank had not been set up quite in the way that they required. Uh, and therefore, um, it looked for a while as if we weren't going to be able to proceed with this. Uh, another problem that we hit was that um, T-cells from our bank were not approved for use in the United States. And the reason for that was that the bank was set up between 1999 and 2000, uh, which was the time when BSE was occurring in the UK and new variant CJD was turning up. And the Americans at that point put a ban on having any uh, blood uh, donors who had been resident in the UK. And they said that uh, they could not approve this bank because one of our donors may have been uh, a potential carrier of the new variant CJD microbe or whatever it is. Uh, we worked out that there was a one in 4,000 chance of this being the case, and I argued very strongly that I didn't think the patients would mind. I think they'd be prepared to take the risk, but they weren't having it. Uh, and so again, it looked as if we, um, we sort of completed our trial and then nothing was going to happen. But fortunately, uh, it ended well because uh, earlier this year, we were awarded a Wellcome Trust translational award um, with money to make a new bank, and this time in collaboration with the Scottish National Blood Transfusion Service. I've just put this slide in to show you the worldwide distribution of BSE. Uh, on this map, the red colors are the countries who have reported BSE in their indigenous animals, and the yellow countries, including the United States, are ones that have only reported BSE in imported animals. Um, so the big arrow there shows you the country where we're going to get our donations from um, in order to make the new bank to be absolutely sure uh, that we're doing the right thing. So, this is our future plans. We're going to get blood donations from New Zealand, at least initially, to set up the bank. Um, we're going to grow killer T-cell lines in a containment facility at the Scottish National Blood Transfusion Service place in Aberdeen. Um, and obviously, uh, following the EU guidelines. And then, when we've made them, the T-cell lines will be made available by the um, blood transfusion service to patients on a not-for-profit basis. And really, it will be just like getting a unit of blood, but you'll be getting a unit of killer T-cells um, to treat a tumour. And I'd just like to finish by acknowledging all the people who were involved in this trial, um, a very large team in Edinburgh, including Tanzina Hark, who was the clinical lead on a day-to-day -day basis. And I've already pointed out uh, Gwen Wilkie, who's here, um, who was our trial coordinator. Uh, the Scottish Blood Transfusion Service obviously provided the donors and is now very much involved in the trial. We couldn't have done it without the patients and the staff of the collaborating centres. And of course, our funders, starting with the MRC, uh, then the Cancer Research UK, and now finally the Wellcome, uh, and of course, the University of Edinburgh. So, I don't stop there. What is our next investigation? Uh, well, we're back in the lab um, looking at antibody therapies this time and hoping that what we're doing will come to fruition really quite quickly and then we'll be able to run a trial uh, comparing any new therapy that we might produce uh, with our, our killer T-cell bank from Aberdeen. I'll stop there. Thank you very much. It's not the first time, is it, that there's been loss of international confidence in Edinburgh-based banks. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's, good, it's good, to see you, good to see you fighting back. Um, 
that was a wonderful opening to this series of lectures. I don't think Sherlock Holmes bothered with clinical trials. He would have known he was right when the moment he saw the immunostaining and the tumour. But it shows what uh, a brilliant piece of clinical science can do for patients. And I would like to emphasise, as someone who's looked after a patient with this uh, life-threatening condition, the, the decision you used to make as a clinician was basically, do you lose the transplant or lose the patient? Uh, and Dorothy now offers uh, the prospect of uh, not only saving the patient, but saving the transplant. And I think that's a fantastic achievement. So I would like to thank Dorothy again for a wonderful start to this series uh, and a fantastic story. Thanks very much, Dorothy. This production is copyright, the University.